Amos chapter 3. Amos chapter 3. Don't forget we have our conferences coming Friday. So excited. Uh, Topics should be good on Friday night. Dave, you'll like this. He's going to be teaching why the Reformation matters. And then on Saturday, he's going to be doing two sessions on the differences between Catholicism and Evangelicalism. And then on Sunday, he's going to be talking about the purity of the gospel from Galatians 1. So it should be a good, good conference. There's flyers over there if you want to continue to hand those out. That'd be great. But but we can uh, turn, as you turn over to Amos chapter 3, remember we're in this series and we called it the roar of justice, the roar of justice. And this is what we see happening as Amos, this farmer prophet (laughs) selected by God to be a prophet, comes and begins to share the truth of what God has revealed to him with the people, uh, first the enemies of Israel and Judah, and then Judah and now Israel, and he's prophesying judgment against them. And we're going to tonight be in chapter 3, and this is really a a word specifically against Israel, against uh, the northern group. Uh, And after we... uh, we read our text here. I just want to remind us where we've where we've been. Uh, we saw the picture of this lion uh, in chapter one, verse two, and that is God, this roaring lion. And we looked at the uh, punishment of Israel's enemies, and that's the section all the way from verse three of chapter one down to chapter two, verse three. And uh, now we're in this section that deals with the punishment of God's people. And this runs from verse 4 of chapter 2 all the way to the end of chapter 3. And I um, should say 3.15, not, or 1 to 15, not 1 to 16 on your outline there. I messed that up. But the people of God will be punished. And uh, remember, we started in the southern kingdom of Judah, and he just made some very quick remarks there that they were... Um, they turned away from the Word of God. They weren't honoring the Word of God. And it's going to be many years, really, before Judah is destroyed by Babylon. Uh, and that was in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2. And now in verse 6, all the way to the end of chapter 3, we're dealing with God's people in the northern kingdom of, of Israel. And they are going to be punished. And we looked at the reasons why uh, last time together, verses 6 to 8. And we had the verses 9 to 11 reminded us of all the blessings that God has given to them. He destroyed the Amorite. He brought them out of the uh, the wilderness, all these things. And yet they still did not repent. They still did not turn to God. And then in basically verses uh, uh, 12 to 14, we ended up with the results of what, what happened. And he he explained that to us. But now we're in this section here in chapter 3, and we're talking about the punishment that God will bring. 
this the realization uh, for us that this judgment is not escapable. You can't get away from it. And he, he says so much in verses 1 through 15 of chapter 3, the realization that they will not escape the judgment of the Lord. And the reason is, is because they've gone too far. They went too far. They crossed, you could say they crossed the line. Uh, judgment is coming. There's no turning back at this point. And so follow along in your Bibles as I read chapter 3 for us, dealing with Israel's guilt and Israel's punishment. So Amos chapter 3, the prophet writes there in verse 1, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family, that includes everybody, Judah as well, and Israel, that I brought up out of the land of Egypt, all, all 12 tribes he's talking about here. Um, verse 2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. <clears throat> verse 3, common verse, often misquoted, taken out of context. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Verse 5, does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing. Verse 6, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster or calamity or some translations say evil come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Verse 7, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. Verse 8, the lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Verse 9, proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountain of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Verse 11, therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs, and a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Verse 13, Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, that on that day I punish Israel for his transgressions. I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. Verse 15, I will strike the winter house along with the summer house. It speaks of their wealth. And the houses of ivory shall perish and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Wow, incredible judgment from God against his people. Let's pray. Father, we come tonight and we ask just for our 
brief time here this tonight that help us to understand what happened in Israel um, long ago is really true to what's on the horizon for us in our country if we don't repent. Father, we know that history is filled with examples of those who thought they could somehow escape God's judgment. But we find clearly here tonight that that will not happen. You told us that judgment must begin with the house of God. And even believers will not escape the chastening hand of the Lord when they continue in sin. So help us, Lord, tonight to understand these words. We ask this in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this is an awesome passage of Scripture dealing with God's judgment coming on Israel. But it has a lot of applications for us. Now, remember, we looked at the reasons, a reminder of the results. This is number four, the realization that they will not escape the judgment of the Lord. And this has to do with all with, with chapter three, what we just read. They realize that this, this will not uh, stop. There's no turning back the clock at this point. I think a lot of us, especially as believers, somehow think God is just going to sweep stuff under the rug when we do things that are not in accord with his, his will or somehow by his grace he's just going to overlook it. But the Bible makes it very clear that your sin will what? Find you out. <laughs> you don't get away with anything. You don't get away with anything. Praise God for his grace. There's a chastisement that comes to believers that's different than the punishment for unbelievers. But this punishment that he will bring in verses 1 and 2, he points out to us, there's two things here, the reference to Egypt and the relationship they had to the Lord. Um, he says, I will punish, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. I will, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. And then he says in verse 2, uh, down at the end there, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities or your sins. We all <laughs> can stand before the Lord and say, hey, that's me. We all sin, probably in a myriad of ways every day. I guarantee you, you've sinned today. There's nobody perfect. And if we were all punished for our sins, we would all deserve what? Hell. We deserve hell. Clearly. There, there's no argument about that. Uh, Lamentations 3.22 says the Lord of, he, he, that the Lord is the Lord of mercies, that we are not consumed because his what? Compassions fail not. But sometimes we kind of, I think, enjoy pushing the loving kindness of God to the brink. You know, we, we see the line and we say, oh, let's see how close we can get. Um, and it's the goodness of God, the Bible says, that what leads us to repentance. But sometimes we keep on in our self-centered, our uh, selfish ways. We don't want to do what God wants us to do. We keep on and we don't want to give it up. We, we rebel. We have bad attitudes. We resist the Lord. Um, we resist others who are trying to tell us. And we think somehow that God is just going to make all these things just go away. That it's not going to have any impact. Because after all, we're saved by God's grace. That's not true. We are saved by God's grace. 
but our sins do have an impact on our, our walk. The results and the consequences are different. Praise the Lord. As believers, we don't have to look at an eternity of hell. Amen? We're saved by God's grace. We're held fast by Christ. But in this life, we will reap consequences if we are not living in a way that is honoring to the Lord. We will pay in this life for what we've done if we refuse to get right with the Lord. Very clear. And I'm thankful, by the way, that God has a long leash, a long rope. You know, he, he lets us go quite a ways before he yanks it. You know, um, I'm thankful for that patience. I, I trust you are too, that he's, he's, he's patient with us. But the punishment that God will bring, there's two things here. And um, we're going to talk about something here at first is a little off the wall, but the reference to Egypt in verse 1. Look at what he says. He says, hear the word of the Lord. And he starts off each one of these messages. He has basically three messages here that he's going to, this prophet, Amos, the guy with the burden on his heart, he's going to proclaim to God's people. And he starts each one with, hear this word of the Lord. And it starts off in verse 1 of chapter 3, and then also in verse uh, 1 of, of chapter 4, and then also in chapter 5. Hear this word. Uh, that, that's an important thing for us, right? We need to hear the word of God. We don't need to hear what other people are saying. We don't need to hear what the news is saying. We don't need to hear what our friends are telling us. We need to hear the word of God. And so he says here, basically, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He brings up the land of Egypt. Turn over to Hebrews. Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3. So in verse 1, he brings up this reference to Egypt. In verse 2, he brings up this relationship uh, that he has, that they had with the Lord. But as you turn over to Hebrews verse 3, just follow along. I'm going to start in verse 7. And it's, it's interesting what the writer of Hebrews says here, and it's talking about a rest for God's people. Verse 7 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear this voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of the testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. They saw what God was doing for them for 40 years. Therefore, in verse 10, and they did, still didn't do the things right. Therefore, verse 10, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Verse 11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you in you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 14, he continues, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Yeah, we're saved by God's grace, but we're also called to persevere. 
We're also called to be overcomers. We don't just sit back in the armchairs of grace and say, oh, God's got it all handled. I'm going to do anything. I can just do whatever I want. No, that's not the heart of a believer. He says in verse 15, as it, as it said today, if you hear his voice, look, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. When they rebelled against God and were out in the wilderness for that long period of time, okay, they were miserable, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't repent. <laughs> and sometimes... We find ourselves in our own Christian walks, in our own Christian lives, in that state of, of hardening our heart against what God wants from us and what he wants for us. And in verse 16 of Hebrews 3, he says, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? In other words, these are the, the people that were following Moses. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not? with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were what? Disobedient. Verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter rest because of what? Unbelief. Now here's what's, what's interesting. You can go back to Amos. When he says here in Amos, verse 3, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. When it speaks here of this word against, a lot of people actually use this text. And this is very technical in the Hebrew language. And I don't know the Hebrew that well, but I, I know people that do. And I've talked to them about this. And they say that this word, when it says the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, people use that as a context to say, oh, see, God has turned his back on Israel, and now all the blessings for Israel go to the church. There's a lot of preterist people that believe this, a lot of people that are um, replacement theology. They say, oh, the, Israel doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter what happened to Israel because God's done with Israel. Because in Amos, he says he's spoken against them. And what's interesting, when you study this out, that word against in the Hebrew can also be translated in Hebrew, the phrase to speak, to speak. And when it's used with a, a preposition as it is in this case, it means about rather than against. So really what Amos is saying is you, you could kind of use it as a, as a way of understanding. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken about you, not against you. God's not against Israel. And so there's a way here of using this, and a lot of people who have translated this over the years, I think they got it wrong. I think it should say about, not against. And so when you read it that way, it kind of changes the whole meaning of it, doesn't it? And what it reveals to me is that the nation of Israel, what are they doing? They're misunderstanding God's love for them. Just like sometimes in our own lives, we misunderstand God's love for us. Have you ever been in that spot in your own Christian walk? Maybe things aren't going the best, and all of a sudden you start whining, complaining to God, how, how could you dare let this happen to me? You know, thinking that somehow you know better, right? And you, what do you think? You think God is against you, that God doesn't love you anymore. 
that your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling. That's not true. And they got to that same point. And when you get resistant to the Lord, when there's something in your life, when, whether it's a pet sin or whether it's something you're holding on to, you're not, you're not yielding yourself to Christ as he calls you to do, you don't let go of it, um, and you're angry about it, you do not want to do the will of God, even get bitter about it. When you're even in that state, guess what? God still loves you. He still loves you. Even though we're not cooperating with God, He still loves us. Amen? That's a, it's a wonderful truth to hold on to. And so when he says here, hear this word that the Lord has spoken about you, that changes the whole mentality here, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. In other words, really the reference to Egypt clarifies that God was talking about how he redeemed them from that bondage. Even though they got themselves in that fix and God sent them there, he redeemed them. He saved them out of that. He says, I took you out of Egypt. And, and I love the words here. Um, and you only did I know. Of all on the face of the earth, you were my special people is what he's saying. And this speaks to the relationship that they had to the Lord. And it's one of, of comfort. He was talking about how much he loved them. And that's why they were in Egypt. That's why that was allowed to happen. That's why he brought them out of that. He redeemed them out of that bondage. And in verse 2, he talks about this relationship that he had with them. So there's this reference to Egypt, but there's also this relationship that was a very special relationship. You know what, if you're a believer here tonight, if you've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, do you understand that you have a special relationship with the Lord that other people don't have, that haven't done that? You're special in His eyes. You are His child. He is your Father. That's very important to remind yourself of that. that hopefully that brings joy to your heart to know that you have a relationship with God because of Christ that you could there's no other way that you could have had that if it wasn't through Christ. And you know what? Even when you're not acting like you're his child, that relationship is still there. He still loves you. For many times in my own life, I look at my own heart and I'm thinking, wow, I'm almost like an unbeliever at this point. You know, whether it's thinking ill thoughts of politicians or watching the news and getting upset, things like that, or driving down the freeway and whatever it might be, right? Um, attitudes, actions, all these things. But you know what? God still loves me. He still cares for me. He, he, he's not going to uh, cut me off. And I thank God for that, that when God convicts my heart and I confess those sins and those attitudes to him, that you know what? I find compassion before the Lord. I find mercy. I find grace. And guess what? When that confession happens, the burden goes away. You know, when, whenever you, you sin as a believer, the, the Holy Spirit convicts you, does he not? And you have that conviction in your heart, well, I shouldn't be doing this. 
I shouldn't be listening to this. I shouldn't be doing this activity. I shouldn't be watching this. I shouldn't be hanging around these people. I shouldn't be, you can go on and on and on, fill in the blank. And the Holy Spirit's nudging you and he's saying, you know what? This is not going to end well if you continue down this path. Change, change, change. And you have a sick feeling in your gut. But when you, you, you open up the Lord and you say, you know what? Okay, yeah, I give up. <laughs> I'm yours, Lord. I'm going to turn away from this. I'm not going to do these things anymore. These are not honoring to you. It's like that, that, that gut is restored. There's no more sickness. There's joy because of the Lord's graciousness. Um, and then in the moment, you know, it's, it's never forget, no matter how far you stray from the Lord, no matter how many steps you take to run from God, it's, there's only one step to come back. Just one step. It's just to change that heart. It doesn't matter what's been going on under the bridge. It doesn't matter how many sins you've committed. All that stuff. It's just, it's just turning around and saying, Lord, you know what? I am sorry. I, I, I confess this to you. Help me live for you in a way that would honor you. But if you keep it, if you, if, you, if you hold on to those things and those attitudes and those sins, guess what? That burden won't go away. Um, you're going to experience terrible consequences. And the reason is, it's because God loves you. And the Bible says that he's going to chasten you. He's not going to let you do whatever you want. <laughs> you know, we think sometimes we, oh, Christian, I'm free in Christ, do whatever I want. No, I'm not. Bible says we're slaves to Christ. We do what Christ wants us to do. That should be the desire of our heart. So it's not an example of him not loving you. It's quite the contrary. The reason God chastises you, the reason God disciplines you as a believer is because he does love you. If he didn't love you, it's like a parent, you know. Hey, mom, I'm going to go out and play in the freeway, the four-year-old says. Oh, yeah, go ahead. You would say, what's wrong with that mother? That mother doesn't love that child. <laughs> you know, we see that all the time. That's not love. And when you read commentaries about this text, a lot of commentaries, basically, they're, they're hammering home that, that God is against Israel. It says he's against Israel. He's against Israel. And there's a lot of preterists and there's a lot of uh, replacement theology people that said this is the, the, the text it's, that proves that God is finished with Israel. And now all the promises of Israel go to the church. So it doesn't matter if Hamas blows up Israel. Who cares? It's irrelevant because the church has replaced Israel. And these are well-known theologians that teach a lot of these things. I mean, this is just one little preposition of a couple Hebrew letters connected with the Hebrew verb to speak, and it completely changes the whole context. It really does. It speaks of the love of God to discipline his children, but he's never going to let them go. He's never going to let them go. And we're going to learn that even in the next chapter. If we as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ um, become what we don't want to be from time to time, you know, we all do that. Right? We, we fail, we fall into sin. If we don't admit it, that, that we do that, then we got another problem, 
right? Then we're just self-deceived. We think we're perfect, which there is no, nobody is perfect. Um, but, you know, this is not a time to lie or, or to be prideful or to be arrogant. This is the time to run to your loving God and say, hey, you know what? Yeah, you're right. I, I am a sinner and I do need the grace of God. I want to follow Christ. Uh, I mean, most of us probably do enough in one day to go to hell. It only takes one sin. It's time to recognize the love and the wonderful love and the grace and the forgiveness and the compassion of our Lord. And sometimes we look down our spiritual noses at others who may not be walking with the Lord at the time and we think, oh, look at them. Hey, except by the grace of God, there go I. That's the mentality we need to have. One of humbleness. But notice he says here, he points out this, this whole family concept. He says, oh, people of Israel, about the whole family I'm, I'm speaking here. Uh, he, he's including Judah. He's including all 12 tribes he's addressing here. That's who Amos is addressing, not, not just the northern tribe. But then he says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. In Isaiah, the prophet says, thou art mine. You belong to me. That's our relationship with God. It's wonderful to know that truth, is it not? That God takes possession of us, just like he called Israel to be his people. Turn back to uh, Hebrews 12. I just want to show you one more thing in Hebrews. Hebrews 12, and look at verse 5. Talks about not growing weary. This is probably one of the most important passages to tell us that when you got a problem spiritually, when you have a problem emotionally, whatever it might be, and you can't let it go, uh, it just dominates your heart, your mind. It's a barrier to any kind of joy in the Lord for you. It's a barrier, takes away the peace that you have in Christ. Uh, it, it takes away the ability to love other people the way Christ would have you to love them. Um, I mean, God's going to give you a long rope in that area. God loves you, but he's also going to chastise you if you don't change your attitude. And, and that's what he told Israel he would do. Look at verse, uh, look at verse 5. Maybe we should read this as, we're, as if we're the audience. He says in verse 5, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? What's interesting in this text, when you look up that word exhortation, it comes from the same root word, paracletus, as paraclete, Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? Which means to encourage, a comforter. The Holy Spirit's called the comforter. So it's a little more than just an exhortation. It's an exhortation that provides comfort and encouragement. So you could read it there, verse 5, and have you forgotten the encouragement that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Sometimes when we talk to other people, um, a lot of times we're, we're trying to manipulate them. 
you know, just in our conversations. It's, sometimes we go there. And uh, this, this message really tells us here, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Sometimes we, we want to <clears throat> um, impose some kind of judgment on someone else, and we do it in a way that's kind of sometimes manipulative. You know, they're not acting the way we want them to act, so maybe we'll say something or we'll do something. Uh, then maybe it's a little slip of the tongue, whatever it might be. But it can do a lot of hurt. It can do a lot of damage. And I think God's going to rebuke us um, because why? He, he loved us. Um, and that's what it's, it's speaking of here in verse 5 when he talks about the son. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord because he's doing it not just because he hates you and he's trying to make your life miserable, but he's trying to help you. He's trying to, he loves you. And then in verse 6, he says, for the Lord, this is what he points out, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? That would be what? That would be a dysfunctional family if there was no discipline in the home. If the kids just ran around and and, and did whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, and there was no, there was no curfew, there was no nothing. You didn't have to do your homework. You didn't have to. Eat. You could eat jelly beans all day, be high on sugar all day, and the parents weren't going to say nothing. You could do drugs. You could drink alcohol. You could do whatever you wanted. You know that that would be a dysfunctional home. Most of us would say that wouldn't be a good situation. Well, here it's saying God is treating you as sons, and what kind of father would not discipline his son? Verse 8, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are what? Illegitimate children and not sons. What's he, what's he saying? He's saying, hey, you know what? I'm responsible for my kids. I'm not responsible for the neighbor kids. Besides this, verse 9, we have had earthly fathers who discipline us and we respected them. Most of us grew up in homes where there was some kind of discipline there was some form of discipline, and usually it was the father that would carry out the discipline, sometimes the mother, but usually it was the father that was the disciplinarian. Wait till your father comes home. How many times did you hear that? And they always didn't do it right either. You know, sometimes discipline happened in anger. Sometimes discipline happened uh, in a sinful way, which is not good. But that's not our Heavenly Father. He says, shall we not more, much more, be subject to the Father of spirits and live? In other words, if we had fathers and they disciplined us and we learned and lived uh, through that, how much more with the Father, the Heavenly Father? Verse 10, for they discipline us for a short time as it seems best to them. In other words, they just want to get, you know, the behavior changed. You know, little Johnny's crying and won't eat his green beans and mashed potatoes, so he's going to get a spanking. You know, well, the idea is to what? Make him eat his mashed potatoes and green beans or whatever that might be. That's just a short time. That's like a blip on the radar screen. But he says, but he disciplines us what? For our good. See, a lot of discipline in homes, it's not for the child's benefit. It's for the parent's benefit when you stop and think about it. Why? 
because the kid's crying, the, kid, the kid's being irritant, the kid's not doing what the parents told him, he's being disrespectful. So what does a parent do? Discipline. You know, little Johnny's not saying, hey, discipline me, please. You know, no, it's the parent. It's for the parent's benefit. That's what he's saying here. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us, why? For our own good. God doesn't need to discipline us for his good. He needs to discipline us for our own good, that we may share his holiness. This is how God creates holiness in our lives. This is how God allows the sanctification process, the, the, the process of us becoming more and more and more like Christ each and every day. How does that happen? It doesn't happen by just putting your Bible under your bed, under your, under your pillow and going to bed at night. It happens through sometimes trials, sometimes discipline. Then we can share in his holiness, verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. How many of you were spanked as a child? Probably most of us. It's not fun. You know, I, even as a grandparent, watching my little grandchildren get spanked and stuff, you know, disciplined, any kind of discipline, you know, it just grieves your heart. You know, you just want to, oh, come on, it's not that big of a deal. You know, but we get to go home. You know, the, kid, the grandchildren have to stay with their parents, so the parents know the grandchildren pretty good. And so, you know, whether it's a spanking, whether it's having to put your back against the wall and squat down for a half hour, whatever it might be, or sit on the steps and count to 500, whatever it might be. I mean, sometimes discipline was as simple as, you know what, you got way too much energy, you're being obnoxious, five laps around the block now. And it didn't matter if it was in the summer and it was 130 degrees or if it was in the winter and it was minus 20. You're going to do the five laps. And then everything seems to work out. Okay? And, and this is what it is. It's painful rather than pleasant. Pleasant discipline does not work. I mean, we're, we're learning this <laughs> as a nation. Well, maybe we're not learning it. I mean, with this whole whole thing over in Israel, you know, uh, you know, and I said from the very onset, give it a couple weeks and pretty soon, you know, it'd be Israel who's on, on trial for war crimes. And it's starting to, tide is starting to turn, you know, even though all these atrocities happened for no good reason to civilians who were not doing anything, just minding their own business. And now those in our government are saying, well, maybe we need to do a pause. Maybe we need to slow down. You know, maybe, maybe this is going too far. No, it's not. You know, Israel has its mind set on finding terrorists and killing them. And unfortunately, sometimes innocents are hurt in the process because terrorists who are terrorists use innocent people as shields. That's why they took these innocent people as hostages. A lot of people don't realize that a lot of these Palestinians who are trying to get the, uh, through the, the, the southern gate and get out of there and get to Egypt and, and southern Gaza so they're out of harm's way, all right, uh, Hamas actually let a lot of them leave. And their intent was to put them on this road and let them walk or ride the motorcycle, whatever they got, down until they get there. But along the way, their intent is to kill them. 
blow them up, shoot them down. Then they can say, look at what Israel did. These people, innocent people were escaping. This is what's happening. So what does Israel have to do? Israel has special teams that surround these caravans, undercover people that are in part of the crowd, armed to the hilt, and they're protecting the people who are ruled by their enemy so that Hamas doesn't have the opportunity to send a bomb or a rocket and blow up these caravans and then point to Israel and say, oh, look at what Israel did. And they've been confronted several times and they've actually taken out several Hamas terrorist nests that were waiting as they release these Palestinian people. Oh yeah, go ahead, go, you're free to go. And they're just sitting ducks. But Israel's protecting them. You know, he, he, he disciplines us for our own good, and it seems painful rather than pleasant. But look at what it says. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That word trained, gymnazo in the, in the Greek, and it, it, has the idea, it has the word gym in it. Like you go to the gym, you work out. It's, it's the exercise of a of an athlete in a gym to the point of exhaustion is the idea. See, sometimes you got to be realistic with this stuff. A lot of times, some of the troubles that God brings into our life, let's just be honest, they're exhausting. Sometimes it's not fun. You know, whether it's relationship issues, whether it's health issues, whether it's financial issues, whether it's work-related issues. These are all troubles, trials, tribulations that God allows and sometimes God brings by his direct hand into our lives. And I don't know about you, but after a while you get a little exhausted from all this stuff. They, they tear you down emotionally to the point that sometimes you can't even think straight. But you know what? What this verse is saying is God is going to use all this for your betterment, for your good, for his honor, for his glory, for our profit and blessing. Why? Why does he do this? Because he loves us. This is why all this is happening to Israel, because he loves Israel. That's why he says, here, O Israel, this is about you. You are the ones that I took out of Egypt. You're the family that I, I have. You're the, the people that I set my love upon. And it speaks of that relationship that they had with the Lord. And by application, think of the relationship that we have with the Lord. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Did you ever ask yourself, why did you pick me, God? Why did God save me? I mean, sometimes it's, it's even within a family. You have members of your family that aren't saved, but you are. And you say, why? Why is that? God says, no, I have known you. Of all of everybody, I picked you. I chose you before the foundation of the earth. And because of that, because you're so special to me, because you're elect before the foundation of the, the world, therefore, he says in verse 2, I will punish you for all your sins. And you go, wait a minute, <laughs> I thought you loved me. Exactly. That's why. 
That's why I have to do this. Because I love you, I have to discipline you. He's telling Israel, because I love you, I have to punish you. Why? Because you won't repent. I've given you every opportunity. You will not turn your heart back to me. You won't give up. You just keep hanging on to it. So I've got to judge you. I have no choice. I'm a just God. And I love you that much. As much as it hurts you, it's for your betterment. It's just so incredible when you think about it. Well, secondly, not only the punishment that God will bring, but secondly, in verse 3, we see a principle that's involved here. The principle, in verse 3, it says, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Uh, I don't know if you've ever connected this with this verse. People often quote this out of context, like I said. And, um, you know, can two people walk together except they agree, basically, is the way we hear it. Uh, what's he talking about here? He, he's talking about the relationship that really Amos has with the prophet Amos has with the Lord. In other words, what Amos is saying is what God is saying. But by application, we can really turn it to our own, our own walk with the Lord. He's talking about our relationship with the Lord. Do we really, stop, yourself, stop and ask yourself this, do you really agree when God calls you to repent, do you really agree that you should repent when he convicts you of sin? Do you really agree that, yeah, you know what, I need to get right with the Lord? And then do we act upon it? A lot of times we don't right away. Because we're enjoying the sin, whatever it might be. We're just caught up in, you know, our selfishness and our bad attitude or whatever. And yeah, 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 okay, I'm covered by God's grace. I'm going to do this anyway. Well, we're not agreeing with the Lord if that's the case. Because God is calling us to a different watermark. He's calling us to live in a different way. He's talking about the relationship that we have with the Lord. Very interesting application point. Can two walk together, he says? The answer is no. Remember that game? I don't know if you ever played this game. You, the, what is it called? Three-legged race or whatever. You tie the ankles together and then you got to do the so it's always crazy to do that uh you know but you got to get coordinated you gotta you gotta remember to walk together you can't be both going off in two different directions you're never going to win the race see when you don't let your sin go when you don't walk with god when you don't do what god wants you to do when you don't deal with it when you don't come to the Lord and seek His forgiveness and His restoration, you know what happens? Your relationship as a believer now with God is now strained. It's strained. It's just like a marriage. You know, when, when, when the husband and wife aren't seeing eye to eye, what is, there's not peace in that household. You know, dad comes home from work and Hi, Daddy. Hi, what do you want? You know, everybody's upset in the whole house, and the other people reap the consequences of it, right? That's what happens. It's the same way in your own walk with the Lord. I've talked to so many Christians who are just miserable. They're Christians. They'll tell you everything that they want. You want to know about the gospel? Yeah, they've come to Christ. They've trusted in Christ. And they're miserable. And they're bitter against God. And it's like, what is, what is wrong? They're holding on to something. 
some sin, some attitude, something, and, and they're, they're not dealing with it. And so God just sucks, allows the, the joy to be sucked right out of their life. They have no peace. They can't sleep at night. They have this strained relationship with God, and then they start, if they get really, really bitter, they start shaking their fist at God, and it's all God's fault. Why would God allow this to happen to me? And their whole relationship with God becomes very superficial, really hypocritical almost. Why? Because they're not walking with God. They're going their own way. It's talking here about our relationship with God. You can't walk together unless you be agreed. Now, the point behind all this is pretty powerful. It really is. The point, basically, the general point is that, you know what? As, as stupid as Israel was acting, as sinful as Israel was acting, as wrong as Israel was acting, God gave them chance after chance after chance to come to him, you know, and, and make things right, and they just didn't do it. So now he said, okay, you know, all bets are off. This judgment's coming but it's coming because I love you. I love you too much to let you go down this path. God's never going to cancel his covenant with Israel. Never. Don't let anybody ever tell you he will. Why? Because it's based on his faithfulness. It's based on his love. It's based on his promise, his word to Israel. If God cancels his covenant with Israel, our salvation is out the window. <laughs> Because what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. Because either God's true or he's not. However, within that precious covenant relationship, there's always going to be discipline. You, know, you would think by now, I mean, think about it. You know, they went through the 40 years in the wilderness and went through all the, all the stuff that God has allowed to happen through the entire Old Testament. And now today you have this little group of people, they have their land, and yet everybody's hating them on them. Everybody's trying to attack them. Everybody's trying to annihilate them. And you know what? It's, it, it's sad, but they don't get it. God's trying to get their attention. One day they will. When it looks like they're going to be wiped out, eventually it says what? They will, they will turn to the Messiah. And they will realize, wow, their eyes will be opened. But until then, man, it's going to be a rough road. Don't let that happen to you. You know, if you're a believer here tonight and something's going on in your life that's not honoring the Lord, the Bible says that we confess our sins. Since we've confessed our sins, he is faithful, he is just to forgive us our sins. And what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just one step. If you're not a believer here tonight, don't, don't push the envelope. Don't push the envelope. A lot of times, unbelievers think, well, I, I need to understand more. I, no, you don't. No, you don't. You know, you need to understand you're a sinner and you need a savior. That's all you need to understand. But a lot of people, you know, that's too simplistic. But the gospel is simple. It's understanding who you are, that you're a sinner, and there's no way out of this mess until you turn to the Savior, who is Jesus Christ. And you willingly give up your life to serve and follow Him. It's not difficult. There's nothing more to understand. 
I mean, I, I've been a Christian since I was 19 years old. I have so many questions that I don't even have the foggiest idea how to answer them or where to get the answer. I can't. Because God says, sometimes I'm going to hold on to some things. And just because you're a Christian, I'm not giving you all the information. There are some things that belong only to the Lord. And even in heaven, even in glory, we won't know everything there is to know about God. We won't. Because if we did, we'd be God. And that's never going to happen. So never forget that he disciplines those who love, that he loves. Um, so this principle that we have to walk together. Then he goes into these, these uh, pictures here. And we'll see how far we get here. But these simple pictures in verses 4 to 6 that teach that judgment is coming. Um, look, at, look at verses 4 to 6 of back to Amos 3. He says, does not a lion roar in the forest? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? This first one is the lion that roars. Uh, one thing you'll understand if you do a little research on lions, you know, you go to the zoo and you hear them roaring or, well, usually not at the zoo, but sometimes, and people say, oh, isn't that so neat? Listen to the lion, it's so beautiful. No, you know what that means? That means they're hungry and they want something to eat. <laughs> and they're, they're roaring and people think, oh, that's, that's so neat. I want to stick around. No, it's probably he's concluded that you're the lunch that he wants. Okay, so when you hear a lion roaring, it may not be good to hang around. And that's what the point is. They only roar when they want, and there's something available to eat. And so he says, does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? The answer is no, he doesn't. Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? No. And God is this lying, this, this roaring lion. Remember all the way back in chapter 1, this is how this, this started, that God is this roaring lion. God is described as the lion that roars. And what he's saying is, you know what? You cross the line. It's too late. The lion's already roaring. Second thing he points out, or the second picture he gives is in verse 5. Does, he talks about a snare that traps. Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? And the answer is no. Does a, spare, does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? You know, a snare doesn't just go off when nothing's in the snare. That's kind of a silly illustration, but it's true. See, the second picture here is the, the snare that traps, traps the bird, traps the animal, whatever it might be. Back in Pennsylvania, we have a lot of squirrels, we have a lot of different animals and um, foxes, things like that. And uh, one of the caretakers, his grandchild, he sets up these uh, traps on our property, whether it's a groundhog, whether it's a whatever, he catches all these things and he takes them out of his farm and lets them go out there. So they don't harm our harm our house at all. But here, you know, he 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 basically is is pointing out that that God is setting this trap. But here, the the snare and the trap is the Lord, just like it is the lion. 
In other words, he said, you want to sin? Okay, you're going to find out what happens. I've, I've, set, I've set out an agenda. And you know what? If you do this in this way, you're going to get caught. Because I've, I, I love you too much to, to allow you to do this. Uh, he's not doing it to hurt us. He's not doing it to harm us. He's, he's doing it to get our attention, to get us refocused on himself. And then the third thing here is the trumpet that blows. A lot of times in a city, um, even today in, in some cultures, if something, a siege is happening against the city, somebody's coming against the city to attack it, they'll go to the bell tower and start ringing the bell, right? In some communities, even today, if somebody dies, they'll ring the bell. Somebody was telling me this the other day. One of his, as an altar boy in the Catholic Church, one of his jobs was to ring the bell when the service would start, and the whole community would know that oh, the service is starting, or someone died, or someone something happened. Okay, well back then they blow a trumpet, and he says, and aren't the people afraid? They're not afraid. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? If you have the ESV, that's what it says. The King James actually says this, does evil come to a city? Which is kind of a, a questionable translation. Does evil come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And so people take that verse in the King James and they go, oh, well, you know what? Um, I guess God does sin. God does evil. <laughs> no, that's not what it's saying. It's, it's better translation is the word calamity. Uh, trouble, uh, devastation, you could say. You, we don't believe that God sins. God's holy. God's perfect. It's impossible for God to even lie. He can't sin. Well, does he, you, you might ask the question this way, does he cause us to sin? Have you ever heard that? Some people ask that. Well, does God cause us to sin? Does he make us sin? And, you know, I, I would kind of put that in the hyper-Calvinistic viewpoint. People that want to, I mean, we believe in the sovereignty of God and all that. That's true. But we can't point to God and say, you made me sin. That, that would be a wrong view. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 45, if you just turn over there real quickly, in verse 7, This is almost the exact same language that is used here in, in Amos, Isaiah 45, 45.7. And what God is saying, basically, is that, you know what, uh, when calamity happens, yeah, I've done it. He says in verse 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. There's that word, same word. I am the Lord who does all these things. Sometimes we can't get beyond the love of God to understand that, you know what? Yeah, sometimes God assigns and even causes tough things to happen in people's lives. I remember I got called out to uh, a call of a, of a young elementary girl that was run over over here on uh, Jefferson in... Uh, Alameda de los Plugas, construction guy ran over her. It was raining, she was riding her bike, and she wasn't on the sidewalk, she was on the street, and he was turning right and didn't see her, and she, her head went under the rear of this big construction, and she was dead instantly. 
and poor guy, I mean, he, you know, he was just going to work. He didn't know what was going on. And I remember counseling that couple and we sat right there at that table over there uh, about a week and a half after this accident. And they were just riddled with guilt. And they just kept on asking me, why would God allow this to happen? Why would God, you say you represent God, tell me why he would allow this to happen. And I had to be honest and say, I don't know. I honestly do not know. But I do know you're sitting here right now and you've heard the truth of the gospel and you know what? Uh, as horrible as that is, I can assure you that, that that young child is in heaven, but at the same time, you know, what is God doing in your heart now? You can't bring that child back. What's done is done. It wasn't your fault. You had no fault in the matter. It was just like a, you could say a freak accident. But could God have prevented it? Yes. Did he? No. So there's some purpose in this. You know, the question assumes that, of course, you know what, you know, when you, when you stop and you say, when there's calamity in the city, has the Lord done it? Back to Amos 3. Yeah. Isaiah says, I do, I do all kinds of things. But because we're so focused on God's love, oh, that would never happen. God would never allow something like that to happen. Tell that to the people in Israel today who've had their infant children put in ovens and abused and their heads cut off. I mean, it's just, it's just disgusting. Could God have prevented it? Yes. Did he? No. That's the hard reality. When there's a disaster, when we, what do we call, we, we spoke a little bit about this last week, what do we call disasters when they happen? Like, earthquakes and natural disasters. And, and I told you, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as a natural disaster because God controls the weather. That's why the whole global climate change thing is, is ridiculous. You really think by driving an electric car, you're going to change the climate in the world? I mean, come on. It's ridiculous. Follow the money. That's all you got to do. I, I think we should take care of the planet. God's given us to be stewards of it. But at the same time, you know, we have to realize, you know, we can't think too much about ourselves. Who's controlling the weather? It's not the weather, man. God controls the weather. Psalm 148.8 says, Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all the deeps, fire, hail, snow, mist, stormy wind, fulfilling his what word it says. All these things happen for a purpose. All these things happen for a reason. Maybe God's trying to get our attention. Think of all the natural, quote, disasters we have in California. You wonder, huh? I don't think they're too natural. Maybe God's trying to get some people's attention. God is accomplishing his plan. Ask yourself, why do innocent people die? First of all, nobody's innocent. Right? We're all, but under the view of children, maybe people who are disabled, handicapped, mentally ill, things like that. You know, you can come up with a, a hundred reasons or ask the question, well, you know, what about the poor people in Africa who never heard about Christ? And, and you know, will, will God judge them if they never heard the gospel? Yes, he will. Romans, read through Romans. It tells you all about that. What will he judge them on? Because they haven't responded to the revelation that he gave them. 
you know, it's, it's, it's hard truth sometimes that has to kind of rattle our cage a little bit and get us to understand that, you know what, God does desire our best. So is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Verse 7, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his prophets. To his prophets. Verses 7 and 8, this is this panic that will come. The plan for the future is revealed to God's prophets. That's why it's neat to study stuff like that. Because it's almost like you're reading the newspaper. You're seeing things played out before your own eyes. And God's part is to warn his people of what he intends to do. Even Jesus, when he was, when he was here on earth and he had his followers, what did he say? And we'll close with this. We'll finish it up next time. But uh, he, he told his followers, in this world you will have what? Tribulation. You know, I mean, he, he went as far as to say, you know what? You think they messed me up. Wait till they get a hold of you. Right? I mean, he, he was telling his followers these kind of things. Um, and, and that is, we have a hard time hearing that sometimes. But listen, you know what? As hard as it is to be a believer in this lost and dying world today, it's a whole lot better than going to hell. Because this life is temporary, my friend. This life is just a vapor, it says. Here today, gone tomorrow. But you know what? If you're gone from here and you have not put your faith, your trust in Christ, you're ushered into an eternity in a place of torment that is beyond anything you can ever even imagine. And we need to get real about this. We need to be able to tell people the truth about God's judgment, and it will come. It truly will. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray tonight that as we've looked at these words from the prophet of Amos, and we'll finish it up next time, but Lord, we, we thank you, Lord, that you are in control of things, that you are sovereign over all things. And Lord, that you do love us, that you have chosen us before the foundation of the world, that you set your love upon us, you provided a way out of our sinful state, of the mire and the muck of sin, and you, you stretched forth your hand and you saved us gloriously to be called your own children. Lord, we thank you for that, that we can call you Father, Abba, Father. But Father, we can only do that when we come through Christ. There's not multiple roads to the Father. There's only, there's only one, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not a church, there's not a pastor or a pope or a priest that stands in the way. No, there's, there's one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so tonight I ask, what have you done with God's Son? What have you done with the information that God has allowed you to hear, to understand, even here tonight? Has it convicted your heart? Has it showed you your need of a Savior? Because if it has, I pray, I beg you to, to make that profession of faith. To come clean with God. Say, God, I am a sinner. I do need a Savior. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. 
He'll answer that prayer when it's prayed from a sincere heart. Lord, pray you bless our conversation tonight around our tables and just bless us and pray for the conference this weekend that you would draw people here who need to hear the truth concerning Catholicism and just uh, our, our faith in Christ and uh, the gospel. Lord, pray for Mike and his wife as they travel out Friday. Lord, that you would just bless their travels around, allow them to arrive here safely. And we just pray for a full weekend. We look forward to how you're going to bless us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.